the triumphal entry into the holy city Jerusalem was a public declaration of the anticipated coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ as king of the universe. Now while some knew exactly who it was that rode upon the donkey, many did not and were amazed that this lowly carpenter would hold a procession reserved for Caesar himself. Our old covenant reading coming from the Psalms, Psalm 96, Psalm 96, as the psalmist begins the enthronement psalms where he proclaims Yahweh as king of nations. By inspiration of God, the psalmist writes, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heaven rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Matthew 21, the first 11 verses, as the Lord Jesus Christ is presented before all nations in the face of Israel. By inspiration of God, Matthew writes, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. 
Now the account of Christ's procession into the holy city of Jerusalem must be understood for what it truly presents and not what the theological modernists wish to make it. It is without a doubt one of the most important declarations of the Christ on par with his subsequent resurrection simply because it dramatically symbolizes his overall global purpose for that incarnation and his subsequent victory at his resurrection. And that purpose was the declaration, this procession, this triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem, this procession was the declaration that he was and is and forever will be from that time forward. This is a declaration of his universal sovereignty over all men and all nations. The entire focus, object, theme, and goal of the Old Testament scripture is on the person, work, and victorious conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of which is fulfilled in the New Testament and displayed at this very moment in A.D. 33 in his triumphal entry into the holy city, Jerusalem. Now sadly, the triumphal entry, as it has been called throughout the ages, has been grossly redefined, marginalized, and made a mere abstraction so as to lose its real meaning in this postmodern, post-Christian age. Yet the significance of Christ's glorious procession into the Holy City is nothing less than God's absolute declaration that Christ had actually become the enthroned king and it was he that was testified in the love of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. He is saying, I am he that was prophesied of old, even as the enthroned Christ. Matthew understood exactly what the triumphal entry represented. He saw it as the enthronement of Yahweh the King in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets had proclaimed would come to reign among his people over the entire global order so as to reconstruct, and that was the purpose, he would reconstruct the entire culture according to his righteous will. As the King of Nations, he would begin his reconstruction understanding exactly what the triumphal entry represented, Matthew draws from and quotes directly from the Old Testament passages and the ideas of the enthronement king, especially those of the royal Psalms, and particularly not only Psalm 96, but Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And by doing so, he connects the Old Testament and the New Testament as one seamless whole. And this is what Zechariah was discussing in his declaration in Zechariah 9. And this is what the people were saying during Matthew's day. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The psalmist would quote these very same words. And it was this very same psalm that the Lord Jesus in Psalm 118 would lead the apostles in at the Passover supper. He was telling them by quoting from Psalm 118, where he would quote, Hosanna, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, save now. He would be quoting this at the Passover supper, anticipating, or at least he was seeking to show them that he was going to be the king and showing the anticipation that he was the king even at that last supper. And by his choice of Psalm 118, he was pointing to that victory, 
that victory of his procession and the subsequent coronation as he being the conquering king over a conquered kingdom. Now let's consider just for a moment the meaning of this procession. This was something unheard of. Christ's entry into Jerusalem was a divine and historical testimony of the universal, overall, and comprehensive sovereign kingly authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not something that was declared so that we would see it in our future, but that Israel would see it in their future, our past, subsequently throughout the New Testament age. And this would be realized by the completion of his atonement, the victory of his resurrection, his coronation as described in Daniel 7, and the empowerment of his army of saints in AD 33 at the Feast of Pentecost. So this declaration of his sovereignty wasn't something that's going to be realized in our future. It is something that has been realized already in Israel's future. In Psalm 96, the psalmist clearly describes what this event signified. It is the enthronement psalm. This is the beginning of what is called in the Psalter the enthronement psalms. And the psalmist makes certain that Israel knew, they knew, at least those whose eyes were open, they knew that when the king came, he would not only come as the conquering king in behalf of his people and over his people, he would become and come to them not only as their king, but as the king over all people. This was a declaration of comprehensive sovereignty, not just sovereignty over the church, not just sovereignty of the elect, but a sovereignty which was comprehensive. And so he declares, notice Psalm 96.10, say among the heathen, the word heathen is to be translated as nations, say among the heathen that Yahweh reigns. Next, the psalmist testifies that as a result of the king's coming at his incarnation and his subsequent earthly reign by virtue of his resurrection victory, he will ultimately establish the world by his law. Notice, the world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. This is a reconstruction statement. He is going to remake the world by his sovereign lordship, by the testimony of his church, he is going to reshape the world. And the indication is that the world and its entire societal structure, the institutional construct, will one day be established in righteousness and by righteousness according to Christ's sovereign rule. That's why he came as king. He didn't come as king to be defeated. He didn't come as king to wait 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years after his declaration and his triumphal entry. He came to declare himself as king in that day, in that time, in A.D. 33. The psalmist then declares that when the king finally comes, as promised in his covenant, he will also come as judge. So he's not only coming as king, he's coming as judge. And he shall judge the people righteously. That is why Christ comes. He comes to divide the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the unrighteous from the righteous, the good from the evil, the light from the darkness. That is what Christ does when he comes at Pentecost empowering his people. The indication here is that the world's establishment will not only be established in righteousness, but by righteousness, 
by the Lord as lawgiver, judge, and of course, king. And this is an effective reality. It's not a theological discussion. It's not an abstract. It is real. And as a result of what the Lord declared in Matthew 28, that all power and authority had been given him, he is stating that his position of supremacy had been established. And that's something that we need to understand. That's something that the evangelical community needs to understand. That Christ's position as king has already been established. And at that point, he was given total sovereign rule over the heathen, over all the earth, all that therein is. And it was the declaration that he would take his rightful place as the dominion king. And that's who he is. And again, this must be stressed. He is not only the king, he is the comprehensive dominion king taking dominion over all the earth, regaining the paradise that Adam lost in that fateful event in the Garden of Eden. And as the last Adam, Christ would regain all that was lost. And it is up to the Church of Jesus Christ to continue to declare the crown rights of Christ. That was always historically the Slogan that the Puritans and the Reformers used, we are here to reestablish, to declare and establish the crown rights of King Jesus. Because they understood that Jesus is the King. Not that he would be the King, but that he was established already as the King. And as the King, he would subdue the earth and take dominion over many nations, ruling them in righteousness by the declaration of his word. And it was at that point of his resurrection that the Lord would bring to pass the words of Psalm 2, when the Lord would begin to break in pieces those that rebelled against him. And that is why Psalm 2 is so essential. And that is why it was quoted during Pentecost. Then shall he speak unto them as judge in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. And then God says this, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He is not the coming king. He is the king who has come. When these psalms were penned, Israel knew without a doubt that the authors were referring to Yahweh, the only Messiah. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two: for Yahweh is our judge, Yahweh is our lawgiver, Yahweh is our king, he will save us. The promise of the Lord's messianic enthronement was not merely the future hope of Israel, but the future hope of all civilization. And for us, he is our present hope. And this is what the Hebrew writer was referring to in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, when he says, which hope we have. Notice, we're not, he doesn't, notice what he doesn't say. Which hope we're going to have, but rather which hope we already have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So the Hebrew writer in the New Testament is saying, we already have this hope. It's not a future event. We have it. It is here and now. And as a result of the realization of the messianic promise of victory, the people of God would finally be able to rejoice in the fulfillment of that promise. The problem with the church today, the problem with too many Christians today, is that they keep wringing their hands, waiting for Christ to act waiting for Christ to act as king to take dominion, waiting for that last day. So you'll hear people say, well, you know, we're almost at the the last days. It's coming and Christ is going to come any day now. Christ has come. 
What are we waiting for? Why stand we here idle? Why are we waiting when Christ has already come? You cannot put off the day of Christ's supremacy because it has already come. Now note the response to the Lord's enthronement in Psalm 96, 11 and following. What should be the response of the church today? Not the wringing of hands, not saying, oh, look at what's happening in Washington, oh, look what's happening in the world, look what's happening here. That is not the response. Here's the response. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before Yahweh. Why? Why should we rejoice? Why would the psalmist tell us to rejoice? How can we rejoice when we're looking here and we're looking there and this is dark and that's dark and this is happening and that legislative is going on and this is going on? Why, why can we rejoice? Well, he tells us in verse 13, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. But that was for them. He's coming to judge the earth. When did he come to judge the earth? When he came in the incarnation. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. That's why we can rejoice even now. The procession into Jerusalem was the anticipation of Christ's eminent magisterial dominion enthronement that would be certified after his victorious resurrection and actualized at his coronation when he ascended to the Father, recorded for us in Daniel 7. And that's another thing that the church misses. They'll have this celebration for the resurrection. But they miss the coronation at the ascension. How many pastors preach on the ascension and and the critical idea and reality and doctrine of the ascension. Daniel tells us all about the ascension. When Christ, after 40 days on the earth, is ascended to the Father, it is at that time that he is coronated and given a kingdom and dominion and authority. Notice Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold... One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And notice what happens here in verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel is telling us of this incredible coronation event. He's splitting open the mystery of the heavens and he's showing us what is happening at the ascension when the Lord Jesus was actually enthroned as the king of kings, as the king of nations, to be seated at the right hand of God judging the people and the nations of the earth. The procession of the anticipated king was divinely orchestrated and staged so as to prove in a public display. Now notice, why did he do this secretly? Why was this a public display? Well, it was to prove in a public display that the covenant promises of the Old Testament concerning the enthronement of King Jesus was now finally at hand. It was finally now going to be realized. The goal of this pronouncement was so that the world would behold the establishment of the crown rights of King Jesus over the entire global order and every other nation and institution therein as the lawgiver, judge, and sovereign king. It wasn't a secret event. 
It wasn't like the Mount of Transfiguration when only the three apostles went with him to see his glorious transformation. This was a public event in the face of old Jerusalem. And this is why Matthew is is so careful to quote from the fourth book of the Psalms, particularly from Psalm 96, Zechariah as well, and then of course Psalm 118, what is called the, the Hallelujah Halil, when he pens the account of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21 points Israel back to the Old Testament Psalms in order to make the clear connection between the prophecy and its fulfillment by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who had eyes could understand this, could see this. And what God is saying here is, actually, what is He saying? He is not only saying, I am the King. That would be enough. But He's saying man is not the King. Man is not the orchestrator of human events. Nor is he in any way omniscient, omnipotent, or messianic. He is in fact puny man with a puny intellect made from the dust of the earth and set upon a dunghill as a result of his rebellion in Adam. So what Christ is saying is, not only I am the king, but you are not the king. Caesar is not the king. But what does the fact of Christ's sovereignty actually mean And how is it globally efficacious in our modern times? How is it effective in our modern times? Well, consider first the sovereignty of God against the quest by man for sovereignty. You see, throughout history, man's quest has always been sovereignty. To dethrone God and become the king of nations. The psalmist tells us as much in Psalm 62. Verse 4 and following. They, man, only consult to cast him, God, down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. But my soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. You see, man only wants to cast God down from his excellency. So in an effort to either be as God, or to construct a God that can lord over, or dethrone God... In that effort, they seek to be God. Now, the serpent's lie to Eve could actually be stated like this. When he said, ye shall be as God, knowing good from evil, the literal could be translated, ye shall be sovereign, knowing good and evil. Notice, man's desire, his passion for sovereignty. As theologian Martin Silbretti explains, he says, it is crucial to understand this one indisputable fact. The program put across by the serpent involved sovereignty. Sovereignty entails possessing the authority to define and to determine the definition of all things. Man is infatuated with the idea of control. So what do we see? We will redefine everything. We'll redefine man. We'll redefine woman. We'll redefine this. We'll redefine that. We'll redefine everything. We will be as God. As Sobretti explains, mankind desires to possess unlimited authority in order to define the world around him and to determine its outcome. They're control freaks. 
They are people who want sovereignty. And this is man's inner drive. And, and given the opportunity, whether it's political power or military power, he will make the most of it, even if it means the total destruction of others. And we are seeing that today. We see this in the world around us as never before in many of our lifetimes. And what man cannot get into his mind, what he cannot fathom, is that he is limited. Moreover, what the state cannot fathom is that they too are limited in their rule and when they begin to overreach their legitimate authority, they must be met with biblical opposition. Mankind desires to be the center of the universe, the dispenser of truth and the sole determiner of human events. And the one thing that drives men insane beyond their natural tendency to be mad with hatred against God, because that's what they are by nature, they're out of their mind, But the one thing that drives them even more insane and puts them over the edge even more so is that God claims sovereignty over and against man and they are powerless against him. That's what they cannot stand. So when the church stands against the state, so when the church stands against man's quest for dominion, it drives them crazy. And they will do anything and everything they can to squelch that declaration. And their insatiable thirst for power over and against God, they devise so many evils in order to foolishly declare their sovereignty and oppress those that they seek to rule over. Again, Isaiah declares the same thing in Isaiah 32.7. Notice, the instruments also of the churl are evil. He devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. That's what they want. They want to destroy the poor. And here the poor means the Christian. It is this conspiratorial, this conspiracy, this mindset of conspiracy, of evil, devices, among the reprobate of the world that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why are they setting themselves, the kings of the earth setting themselves and the rulers take counsel together? Why are they conspiring together against the Lord and against his Messiah saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us because they do not want to be under authority. They want to be the authority. Rebellious man is saying that they do not want God's restrictive laws to be their guide. Cast the bands of the triune God from us. That's man's desire today. Such was the design of the secular philosophers, social activists, authors, rulers, legislative magistrates, poets, political theorists, and heretical theologians. By their activities and the dispensing of their anti-biblical ideologies, they were in a sense confederating with each other to negate the sovereignty of God and establish their own sovereignty. And these were the devices and the imaginations of their evil hearts. And while the devices of the wicked are always at work in the world, we can also trace it back more specifically within our own nation. When we look back at the history of our nation, we can see how the wicked were conspiring against Christ. According to the Reverend John Witherspoon and many of the Puritans, America was originally... In their mind's eye, they wanted America to be the city upon a hill, a light that would shine to other nations that the Lord had spoken of. He told the citizens of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that all of the eyes of the nations, all of the world's eyes were upon them. 
And they were to be a shining light of Christian charity and devotion to the Lord and His truth. He saw America as a public display of Christian governance, religion and liberty for all nations to follow. According to Deuteronomy in chapter 4, that's what he wanted. God had promised Israel that if they obeyed His commandments, if they only obeyed His commandments of ethical obedience, which He set forth at Sinai, then they would be the model of righteousness to every nation. And that's what Witherspoon wanted. And one of those requirements, in addition to ethical purity, was to keep His holy Sabbath, because it was there where the majesty of the Creator God was proclaimed publicly before all the nations. It's on the Lord's Day. Where we, when we gather together, we are publicly declaring the sovereignty of Christ. That we are called as distinct people of the world. As Moses told Israel, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Witherspoon wanted America to be that nation. God told Israel to publicly acknowledge the supremacy of the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and actively secure His crown rights over all nations by being obedient But once they failed in their obedience, God promised cursings as well. So we are to actively secure the crown rights of King Jesus and advance His dominion kingdom on earth, first by our obedience and second by our public community declaration. That's how we do it today. Preaching the gospel and gathering together. And what is the first thing the state wants to do? Shut down the churches. They can't shut down the procession of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's happened already. But they could shut down the testimony of the church. When the church believes that Caesar is God, the day is lost. By our Sabbath declaration and our personal obedience and our gospel declaration, we establish the crown rights of King Jesus daily. We are not to concern ourselves with the wicked devices of the reprobate, for the scriptures clearly state in Psalm 5, He disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. In Psalm 33, in Psalm 37, in Proverbs 1, in Proverbs 19, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Therefore, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Therefore, shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. There are many devices in man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. We have nothing to worry about. God is working actively, even this day, as the king of the universe, to... Tear down the devices of the wicked. In the same way as Israel succumbed to the ways of the wicked, 
Sadly, so has America succumbed to the ways of the wicked. During the time of its creation, America has succumbed to secularism both within and without the church. As with Israel, America has had its long slide downward into that dark apostasy that began to deconstruct Witherspoon's hope. We had that hope. It began with America's inception. By embracing secularism, that hope quickly withered. By the 1800s, America saw the rise in dispensationalism, with John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofields undermining the universal conquering power of Christ within time and history. They said, oh, no, 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 no. Christ will be reigning after the world is in a blaze. They began the undermining. By the 1900s, men like John Foster Dulles and William Jennings Bryan, who introduced into the churches the idea of a one-world government, came upon the scene in effect, seeking to reestablish the Tower of Babel and man's sovereignty over the earth. And then we have the literal Baptist minister, Harry Fostick, also of the early 1900s, encouraging radical liberalism to be embraced by the church, which included abortion and homosexuality. Yes, it was in the early 1900s that the church started to embrace the idea of abortion and homosexuality. So that by 1924, many Presbyterian pastors had already joined together and began questioning the inerrancy of Scripture, paving the way for the total eradication of the supremacy of the Word of God and its replacement with the mind of man. We know better than God, they said. We can determine good and evil. We can say this is scripturally accurate and this in the Scripture we don't want to obey because it is un- inaccurate and it is, is unpalatable. So once the church embraced the propaganda of these heretics, their duty to establish the crown rights of the Lord's supremacy dominion evaporated. And what that did was it gave free reign to the secularist dominion quest, which was established on two fronts, within the sacred world and in the secular world. So you have worldliness in the secular world and then worldliness in the sacred world in the church. And so the first tactic in man's quest to be sovereign is to question the absolute authority of Scripture. The second is to cause doubt whether God is really in control of world events or not, which begins to erode faith, replacing it with fear. How many people today are saying, Oh, oh, the devil, he's loosed. It must be the thousand years that the devil is loosed. Oh, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, I'm afraid of the other thing. Well, that is eroding faith. That is eroding confidence in God. That is eroding the supremacy of Christ in the world, in time, and in history. The third tactic is to erode the moral foundation of the nation by reconstructing it according to man's own wicked fallen imagination. Now a note of clarification here is warranted. Man by nature seeks to reconstruct his environment. That is what man wants to do according to his own mind. Reconstruction is a natural result of man's nature. When the nature of man is depraved, he will then, he has to, he must seek to reconstruct his environment accordingly. On the other hand, when man's nature is regenerated by the grace of God, he no longer seeks reconstruction of the social order according to his sinful lusts. He now considers the will of God first, and then he seeks to reconstruct all aspects of civilization accordingly. He looks to the scripture as the plumb line, as the measuring standard. He understands clearly the implication in the model prayer of the Lord Jesus when he taught his apostles to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, the righteousness of the kingdom of the sovereign Lord Jesus should structure the entire global order and every element of civilization within that order as it was originally intended in heaven and modeled in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But man is not only evil, naturally. He seeks to establish others to be evil and do evil as well. Isaiah describes man's intention as both corrupted and corruptors of others. Notice in Isaiah 1, verse 4 and following, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, not a corrupted, but corruptors. They're actively seeking to corrupt you. They want to corrupt the church. You have ministers in the pulpits that are corruptors. If they're not regenerate, they are seeking to corrupt with all kinds of heresies. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. So natural man without the Spirit of God is not only corrupt by nature, he's also a corrupter by nature. It is according to that principle that natural man without the Spirit of God works. Describing unregenerate man, the apostle picking up from Isaiah gives this catalog in Romans chapter 1. Speaking of natural man, being filled with all unrighteousness. Notice, filled with all unrighteousness. Not so much he's unrighteous, but he's filled with all kinds of unrighteousness. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity. Whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Notice they're inventing evil things. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, intuitively they know the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, notice, but have pleasure in them that do them. They're corruptors. They want to corrupt you. They don't only want to seduce you. They want you to be seduced so that you can be corrupt. When the Lord Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, he was making a public statement which had personal, political, legal, and social ramifications. Personally, he was entering into the city of peace so as to mediate peace between God and His elect by His atonement. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and following. For He is our peace, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. He was also establishing his magisterial supremacy over those he came to save. So from the point of salvation, his people were no longer their own. They had been purchased as bondservants to serve him only according to his word of truth. So whenever you consider yourself a a believer, a follower of Christ, you must consider yourself a bond slave. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23, 
For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. For ye are bought with a price, be not the servants of men. You are bought with a price, you are a bond slave. Now politically, legally and socially, Jesus is riding into the holy city as lawgiver, judge and king. He is not only presenting himself as the suffering servant, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, he is making a political statement. This was a political statement. And, and ministers who say, well, you know, the Bible is not political and we shouldn't be political, this shouldn't be political. They don't understand what happened on that fateful day. Christ is making a political statement targeting both the Roman Empire and the tyrannical magistrates of Israel, the Pharisees. Jesus' triumphal entry was calling out the tyrannical state and the apostate church. Theologian Alan O'Miller, in his work, Calvin's Political Theory, writes this. He says, Indeed, magistrates properly have authority to govern society as ministers of God's law. But the church has the responsibility to minister both the gospel and the law. The gospel through the service of the word and sacrament and the law through the prophetic role of holding up the vision of justice and challenging the government at every turn to implement it. Has the church done that? That is what the church is supposed to do. The Pharisees and scribes of Christ's day should have maintained the service of righteously judging Caesar since they sat in Moses' seat, which was a description of their civil office. And yet they had succumbed to secularism and forged a veiled confederation with Caesar. How many churches today have forged a confederation with the state? by declaring themselves a 501c3 church, or by closing their doors, or by doing this, or by doing that, or by doing the other thing. A confederation with Caesar is blasphemous. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, in Matthew 23, 1 and following, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move them with one of their fingers." R.J. Rushton, he observes this, he says, Law comes from the sovereign power and the law of the Lord has a binding and loosening power. The Pharisees and scribes claim to be the bearers of the keys to God's law, but of them our Lord says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Thus, God's law is the key to government on earth. I will say that again. His final quotation, R.J. Rushton, he says this, God's law is the key to government on earth. And yet what has the church done? For Israel, the question was Christ or Caesar. For Israel, as it is today in America, the question is Christ or Caesar, God or the state. And it's amazing that after three and a half years of, of miraculous things that the Lord Jesus Christ had done and the things that he proclaimed, the incredible wisdom, people were still asking on that day when he rode into Jerusalem, who is this? Blind, deaf, dumb. Who is this that comes into Jerusalem in a royal-like procession? Because that's what it was. It was a royal procession. And those types of processionals 
were only reserved for Caesar. So they were asking, who has the audacity to ride into the holy city who is not a Caesar? Who has that audacity? Who is like this? Who could ride in with such king-like fanfare that's not Caesar Augustus? The multitude was so conditioned to think, and here's the key, the multitude was so conditioned to think that only Caesar could be paraded as Lord and Savior, that only Caesar could be the arbiter of truth, that only Caesar could open or, or, or close the churches, that only Caesar could declare what is right or what is wrong, that only Caesar could write in as a, as a sovereign king, that they had forgotten the prophecies concerning the coming of the legitimate divine king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were unaware because they were so conditioned by the state to think that the state was messianic. They were so unaware that there was any alternative to Caesar's sovereignty that they had to ask the question, who is this? What Jesus is doing here and what he has done, he came to give Israel and he's come to give us an alternative to Caesar. And that alternative is the only true alternative for deliverance, liberty, and prosperity. As a result of Israel's blindness, many were unable to come to terms with the question of Christ or Caesar. They were unable to answer the question, will the social order be one under the control of Pharaoh and his power of religion, or will it submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one true and legitimate enthroned king? And that's the question we face today. The very same question we face today. Who will save us? God or Caesar? Politics, elected officials, or whoever? By what laws will liberty and security be established? God's or the state's? By what standard is judgment to be made? God or the Supreme Court? You see, we ask those questions today. Either Christ is the sovereign absolute king, or he is not. If he is not, then a vacuum is created and another king must take his place. And that king is usually rebellious mankind, its sinful institutions, or the apparatus of the tyrannical state. But it was God's promise that kept Israel hopeful and resilient in the face of 400 years between the Testaments. Okay, so what should we do? What should the church, what should Christendom be doing? What is the goal Well, the overall goal is we are to reorganize the legal and social order of the culture according to the biblical model, making sure that first and foremost, the family and the church is in order. That's the first thing. Your family has to be in order. If it is chaos, if you go home and you're in chaos, something is not right. Because that chaos will be brought to the church and the church is in chaos. So the first thing that we must do is have a biblically sound family and then a biblically sound church. That's the platform we jump from. The strategy, exercise legitimate biblical authority in order to strip the state of those institutions and controls that it has unlawfully commandeered, bringing it back to its place of biblical limitation. The logistics, and there are many, and I've given this list before, but I give it again. 
on this faithful day when Christ comes in to establish himself once again in our hearing as the legitimate sovereign king. These logistics are just some ideas of what we must consider not so much this church, but Christendom at large, so that we would go beyond what the state has done. First, established or at least help establish churches that are faithful. We need more faithful churches. We need more ministers who are ready to serve, sacrifice, and suffer. Those three things are essential. If you don't embrace those three things, you do not become a minister of the gospel. Service, sacrifice, and suffering. Because you will suffer. You will have to sacrifice because you are serving the Christ whom man hates. So establish churches, but also help establish Christ-centered educational systems for every level of education which do not answer to the state. Establish ecclesiastical courts to adjudicate disputes. Establish local Christian banking system using honest money. Not an easy thing, but it can be done. It's been done before. Look at what's happening to our economy. What do you think the end result of this economy is going to be? As more and more money is being printed and sent into your coffers so that you, quote-unquote, stimulate the economy with fiat money, with paper money, with unbacked dollar bills. What are you using it for? Are you turning it against the government that is going to tank the economy by flooding it? So we need to start thinking beyond just coming to church on Sunday. We have to establish a food and clothing bank, open it to the public, use it as a tool to share the word of God. Get the poor off welfare. Teach them that work is important because it is what makes a man a man. It gives them purpose. You see, with these stimulus checks, what's happening is mankind, the the image of man is being destroyed. What's the first thing you ask somebody when you meet them for the first time? Oh, hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? What what do you do for a living? Because it defines a man. But you give him handouts, he begins to lose his identity. Establish Christ-centered homes for unwed mothers, battered women, the homeless, Establish Christian training centers for the unskilled so that people can work. Christian unemployment help, counseling sessions for those who need new skills. Obtain a list of all the employers in the area. Meet with them, introduce the project to them. Help children uh, who are in a difficult situation in the homes. All of these things can be done by Christendom. Establish counseling Sessions for those who are in debt. The greatest thing that you could do with your stimulus check is get out of debt. Get out of debt. Because debt will bury you. And the scripture says, Oh, no man anything but to love him. Use that money to become liberated. If you're going to use it for anything. Establish home education support centers. Encourage home education. 
encourage Christian learning centers. Build a library. We built a library here. Research and training facilities. Wean the parents from the government schools. Train the people for cultural dominion in the name of righteousness. Now, of course, a single church, of course, as I said this before, cannot do this, cannot fulfill all these things. But what can you do? I remember many years ago, and I may have told you this story before, my daughter Jessica was, maybe she was six, maybe seven, and we were setting the table for dinner. My wife was cooking, and I was getting wood for the fire, for the fireplace. We heated our home at that time in New York with a fireplace. So I asked my daughter Jessica to set the table, and she, as Sometimes she would say, no, I don't want to. And that is her prerogative. I said, you don't want to set the table. She said, no. So that's okay. You don't have to set the table. Daddy will set the table. You get the firewood. And she said, I, Daddy, I can't get the firewood. I can't carry the firewood. I said, oh, okay. All right, I'll get the firewood. Mommy will set the table. She liked that. I said, but you have to finish cooking. She said, Daddy, I can't cook. I said, you can't cook. I said, well, if you can't get the firewood and you can't cook, what can you do? And of course she said, I could set the table. Right. And she did. You see, the church needs to come out of the dark ages of fear and intimidation. She needs to recognize that the king has come. She needs to use her office rightly and powerfully for the glory of God and the survival of the culture. The king reigns now and has given the reigning power to his saints. Note what Daniel was told. For us today, we have more than just the promise of the coming king. We have the king himself. Daniel was told that the kingdom was given to the saints of the Most High God. What more do we need? How much more resilient and tenacious are we to be, knowing that the Lord omnipotent reigneth? We need to be resilient. We need to be courageous. We need to be resilient. We need to be tenacious and resolute. The doctrine of Christ's sovereignty and its practical implications needs to be advanced in the world, especially in America, since the world has made a dramatic shift in its ideology toward pagan humanism. But before it can be advanced in America, it needs to be embraced by the individual and by the church. Now sadly, many of the same people who cry, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. One week later, less than one week later, were the same people who cried, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. May we never fail to comprehend the majesty and authority of the present reigning king as we continue to establish his crown rights for the declaration of his word and our obedience to his testimonies. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.